This is week four. It's actually the last in the sermon series I'm doing. And the sermon series is called Weeping and the Heart of God. Weeping and the Heart of God. One of the things that I think we know and are pretty clear about is that when we see tears, something has broken through sort of our external veneer. Uh, The psychologists might call it the persona, that sort of tough exterior you put on. And every now and then something gets to that exterior and it makes it through your head and all the way down into your heart. And often, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes those tears are really symptomatic of something holy going on deep inside of you. I think we can see that when we look at various passages of Scripture as well. And so several weeks ago we looked at Hagar, and we saw that Hagar and Ishmael were weeping in the wilderness and that God heard them and he came to rescue them. Then the week following that we looked at Hannah. She was unable to have children and she wept at the temple before the Lord and God heard her weeping. He saw her tears. Last week, we looked at Psalm 42, and we talked, looked at how the psalmist talked about his tears being his food day and night, and that today, we're actually going to be looking at the tears of Jesus. Uh, before we do that, though, let me take one moment, and let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, today that your word would be empowered by your spirit, and that your word would make it um, through our ears and through our minds, and all the way down deep into our hearts, that you might not only change what we think about this world that you've created, but that we might also be changed in the way that we feel about this world, and the way that we feel about you, and the way that we then choose to live in this world. Father, I pray that no one would be able to leave this room today without having had an encounter with you, the living God. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So in just a moment, I'm going to read a, essentially a poem um, that's called When God Created Mothers. I know it's not Mother's Day, but that's not really the point here. But it's written by a uh, journalist um, and humorist named Irma Bombeck. Irma Bombeck. I'm not sure if any of you guys familiar, are familiar with her name. Uh, but she was a journalist that wrote really in the 20th century. I think she died in 1996. And uh, at the end of her career, she had written over 4,000 newspaper articles. So she was a pretty prolific writer. This particular poem grew out of a very deeply personal experience she had of not being able to have children and then adopting a child. And then after adopting her daughter, Betsy, she miraculously got pregnant and had two more children, took 10 years off from being a journalist, and, uh, and then uh, entered back into the work world. But here's a little um, story slash poem that she writes called When God Created Mothers. When the good Lord was creating mothers, he was into his sixth day of overtime. When the angel appeared and said, you're doing a lot of fiddling around on this one. And God said, have you read the specs on this order? She has to be completely washable, but not plastic. She has to have 180 movable parts, all replaceable. She has to run on black coffee and leftovers, have a lap that disappears when she stands up, a kiss that can cure anything from a broken leg to a disappointed love affair. And she has to have six pairs of hands. The angel shook her head slowly and said, six pairs of hands, no way. It's not the hands that are causing me problems, God remarked. It's the three pairs of eyes that mothers have to have. That's on the standard model, asked the angel. God nodded, one pair that sees through closed doors when she asks, what are you kids doing in there, even though she already knows? Another in the back of her head that sees what she shouldn't, but what she has to know, and of course, the ones here in front that can look at a child when he goofs up and say, I understand and I love you without so much as uttering a word. God, said the angel, touching his sleeve gently, you need to get some rest tomorrow. 
I can't, said God. I'm so close to creating something so close to myself. Already, I have one who heals herself when she's sick, can feed a family of six on one pound of hamburger, and can get a nine-year-old to stand under a shower. The angel circled the model of a mother very slowly. It's too soft, she sighed, but tough, said God excitedly. You can imagine what this mother can do or endure. Can it think? Not only can it think, but it can reason and compromise, said the creator. Finally, the angel bent over and ran her finger across the cheek. There's a leak, she announced. I told you that you were trying to put too much into this model. It's not a leak, said the Lord. It's a tear. What's it for? It's for joy, sadness, disappointment, pain, loneliness, and pride. You're a genius, said the angel. So I think Bombeck was on to something. Our tears aren't a sign that something is wrong with us, but rather our tears are a sign that something is right with us, even if something is wrong with the world. In fact, our tears are part of being created in the image of God. Today we'll see that very thing in John chapter 11 as we read about the tears of Jesus. Now earlier today, um, the Huggins girls read from John chapter 11. They ended at verse 16. We're going to jump into verse 17. And this is admittedly a long section of Scripture, but it's a story. And so you can sit just like you're, when you're a kid and you can listen to the, a long story. And so we're going to read verses 17 through 44. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. When she had said this, she went on and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus said, deeply moved again, came to the, to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, 
but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So the question is, what do we take away from this passage? There's really too much here to unpack. So let me direct your, really your eyes at three different things. What we see here in this passage is in the middle of the grief of Mary and Martha, we see that Jesus gives the sisters precisely what they need. He gives them truth. He gives them his tears. And then ultimately, he gives them a triumph over death. Let's start with what he gives to Martha, the truth. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says this, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming... She went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. This is an absolutely fascinating story. Again, it's really 44 verses plus more at the end that we didn't even read. There's so much here. At the very beginning of the chapter, we read that Lazarus is so sick that Mary and Martha send word to Jesus asking him to come to Bethany. It's clear that whatever illness Lazarus was struggling with was so serious that it would end in death barring a miracle. The sisters knew that, and so they sent for Jesus. Jesus is well, of, uh, well aware of that as well, and yet, jarringly, he remains where he is for two more days. He even tells the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, revealing that he knows that Lazarus has already died. Jesus also reveals to the disciples why he waited and the purpose of Lazarus' death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The disciples needed, needed to know that there was a purpose behind Jesus' actions, and they needed to know there was a purpose behind Lazarus' suffering and his death. And Martha needed to know that too. As Jesus neared Bethany, Martha met Jesus on the edge of town. She didn't wait for him to get there. She went out to meet him. It's hard to be certain what was motivating her, but I think we can piece together some clues from this passage and others where we see Martha in action. I've heard it said that people often exist on a continuum of willfulness to willlessness, willfulness to willlessness. You can think about this in terms of your kids, maybe your spouse, but it would seem that Martha, if that's true, is somewhat on the willful side. When she encounters Jesus, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think, and I could be wrong, but I think Martha is confronting Jesus. I think she's extremely sad. I think she's angry. And I think she's actually blaming Jesus. I think what she's saying is, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She goes on to say in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I think think she's saying, okay, you weren't here, you missed it, but you can still make this right. Again, I think she's confronting Jesus. Let me pause here and say that this scene really makes me like Martha. I teared up several times as I thought about her fighting for her brother. I have little doubt that it was her idea to send for Jesus in the first place. I have little doubt that she couldn't go herself or didn't go herself because she refused to leave the bedside of her sick brother. And I have little doubt that Martha was with Lazarus the moment that he passed away. I don't blame her for being angry. And I completely understand her taking that anger to Jesus. 
Where were you? If you had been here, my guess is that more than a few of us in this room have asked that same question of God before, or at least we've wanted to. In her moment of suffering, in her moment of grief, in her moment of anger, Jesus gives Martha what she needs the most. He gives her the truth. Verse 23 says this, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Her response, that's not good enough, essentially, is what she says. Look at verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Essentially, she's saying, I want him back now. I think she's arguing with Jesus. His response, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do not miss for just a moment that this is an I am statement. This is an I am statement. Clearly, Jesus is revealing his divinity to Martha. She doesn't really know that. He's essentially saying, don't miss out on what you want most for what you want now. The truth is that I will save Lazarus because of who I am. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let me get personal just for a moment here. Martha had just lost her brother. She is understandably upset. She is understandably grieving. She is understandably angry. And Jesus gives her what she most needs at that precise moment. He gives her the truth. Can you imagine if a psychologist or a counselor responded that way to a client in our culture? They wouldn't be in business very long. I'm not saying that we shouldn't grieve with people or be gentle with people in their sorrow. What I am saying is that sometimes what we need even more is to be reminded of what is true. Your brother will rise again. Your father will rise again. Your mother will rise again. Your son or daughter will rise again. Death is not the end. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is the truth. Death is not the end. In our grief, what we often need is to see the truth of God. And at times, we also need to see the tears of God. Let's look at verses 28 through 35. She went and called her sister Mary, that is Martha, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Don't miss the fact that this passage refers to Jesus as the, she, she calls him the teacher, right? He just said, I am. She doesn't quite yet understand who Jesus is. Neither did the disciples until Jesus rises from the dead. But she tells her sister, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she, that is Mary, rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So Martha, after speaking with Jesus, goes back home and tells Mary that Jesus is calling for her. Mary had been grieving too. Surely, like Martha, she had wondered where Jesus had been and why he hadn't come. We're told that she rose quickly and went to see Jesus. We're told that when Mary saw Jesus, she fell at his feet weeping. She was sobbing. Listen carefully to what she says. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the exact same phrase that Martha challenged Jesus with. But whereas Martha was confronting Jesus, maybe even blaming him, I think Mary's words were coming from an altogether different place. She was brokenhearted, but she was still trusting in Jesus. And look at Jesus' response. Whereas Martha needed Jesus' truth, Mary needed Jesus' tears. Verse 33 says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. There's a lot to unpack here linguistically. Mary is weeping. The friends who followed her to Jesus are weeping. Jesus, upon seeing their sorrow, was deeply moved in his spirit. That's the way it's translated here. The Greek word used here means to snort like a bull in anger or rage. In other words, Jesus was more than just sad. He was angry. And it says he was greatly troubled. That word in the Greek, terasso, means to shake back and forth or to boil, roll like boiling water. Eugene Peterson, the author of The Message, translates that verse this way. He says, when Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. Right? That's, that actually is, is an accurate translation. Jesus is filled with rage. Jesus is angry, but he isn't angry at Mary. He's not angry at those other people that are mourning. He's not angry at Martha. Jesus is raging against death itself. Tim Keller gives us a great definition of anger. He says this. He says, anger is energy aroused in the defense of something good or against something evil. Let me read that one more time. Anger is energy aroused in the defense of something good or against something evil. Anger, when harnessed legitimately, prepares us for a fight, either a fight for the protection of some good or a fight against some evil. Here, Jesus' anger is ignited for a fight, a fight for his friend Lazarus and a fight against our adversary death. Jesus' anger, however, is not his only response to Mary's pain. John eleven thirty five 35 tells us that Jesus wept. I went to Christian school through eighth grade, and when we had to memorize scripture verses, this was the one that everybody picked. It's two words long. But it's a beautiful picture of Jesus' humanity and his divinity. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He's already told the disciples that Lazarus' illness will not end in death but he was going to awaken him, and yet he still weeps with Mary. He could have smiled knowingly and pityingly and could have looked at Mary and the others and um, been patronizing, 
He could have walked in triumphantly and uh, magnanimously, but he didn't do either of those things. Jesus entered into Mary's pain, he entered into her sorrow, and he wept with her, and he groaned in anguish with her as they mourned the death of a brother and a friend. In Romans 12, Paul writes a section many Bibles entitle, The Marks of a True Christian. Here's what Paul says here. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. We need to hear that right now. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I wonder if Paul had this very story about Jesus and Mary in mind when he penned those words. We as Christians should be known as people who weep with those who weep. What would it look like if Christian men wept with their children and with their wives? What would it look like if godly women shed tears at coffee shops and in parking lots with hurting friends? In doing so, we would begin to look more and more like Jesus. So what we've been given so far is the glimpse into seeing what Jesus gives us in our sadness and in our grief. He gives Martha truth. He gives Mary tears. But the last thing we see here is that both truth and tears are meaningless without the triumph of Jesus. Let's look at verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus deeply moved again, that's that same word, snorting like a bull in anger, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor for he's been dead four days. It would seem that Martha is still wrestling to relinquish control to Jesus. I think there are more than a few of us in this room who can understand that. Jesus said to her, did, not, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I don't think he's reprimanding her. I just think he's reminding her. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Without triumph, truth is meaningless. Without triumph, truth is meaningless. Without triumph, tears are nothing but symbols of despair. At this moment, both are redeemed. Jesus cries out for Lazarus to come forth. He doesn't ask politely. He doesn't use the word please. Jesus, shouting at the top of his lungs, issues a command saying, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus appears at the mouth of the now empty tomb. He's covered from head to toe with burial cloths, but he is undoubtedly alive. Imagine just for a moment that you'd been in the crowd. Some people would have simply stood there in shock, unmoving, 
with their hands over their mouths. Still others might have gasped in awe or shouted in disbelief. Some may have actually fainted. Others surely applauded and burst into spontaneous praise. Tears of grief instantly turned into tears of joy. Mary may have run to Lazarus, and Martha might have turned to Jesus. But everyone got to see the glory of the Lord that day. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Interestingly, one week later, exactly one week later, there would be another untimely death. Another tragic loss would bring more tears and more weeping to those who loved someone. But this next death, instead of occurring in the quiet privacy of home, would take place in the midst of a noisy crowd. And instead of two loving sisters attending bedside, this dying man would be attended by two coarse thieves. Whereas Lazarus' body was invaded and overwhelmed by disease, Jesus' hands and feet were pierced by nails. Jesus, too, was wrapped in grave clothes and buried in a tomb. A week later, another miraculous resurrection would occur, whereas Lazarus' death and resurrection demonstrated the glory of the Lord. The death and resurrection of Jesus would demonstrate God's forgiveness of sin and his power over sin.